I think the second thing that helped was I, I learned, I tell this young people all the time and anybody, take advantage of your advantage. I had a well-respected father that was a hard worker. I had a well-respected mom. Uh, when she passed away, there were people coming to the home calling me and my dad outside. Uh, Jason, uh, your, your mom loaned me $300 or, you know, she cooked. I got pans and stuff at house I'll return or she co-signed for a loan. I mean, there were thousands of dollars that, she, that we didn't even know that she was doing to try to help people in our community. And, and, and after three or four days, I, I, I pulled my dad aside. I said, dad, I see you going outside sometimes. You know, do you know people are calling me out, telling me different things mom was doing for them? Did you know that? He went, Jason, son, that's the same thing they're doing to me. I said, well, what are you telling them? She said, he said, I ain't collecting nothing. I'm telling them just to keep that. So I had the benefit of two phenomenal parents, but one brother just decided to go the other way, okay? And then I think the third thing I think is the work ethic. You know, just, just, having, just having a great work ethic. I think th those would be the things I would say that, that really helped me, you know, stay on track, stay focused. And, 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 you know, the Lord just brought people in my life to kind of sharpen me. And which is why I'm so determined to sharpen others. I want to create something that I wish my younger self could have had when I first entered the profession, which is a platform to serve and impact the next generation of coaches. Young coaches, young professionals, young leaders, they need to see black faces and they need to um, know their story. Personal lives are generally publicized within our profession. So our platform will be very unique because our guests will all share their powerful stories to help our listeners unlock their potential greatness. Guys, inspiration, inspiration right here. This interview right here with the assistant men's basketball coach at Cincinnati, Jason G. Boy, I enjoyed this conversation. Um, man, talk about being a servant. Talk about being a leader. Talk about being, you know, a person of your word, a person of priorities, and a person of faith. Um, this dude really one inspired us. Two. Um, challenge me, I know, to just like really dig into my faith and be like, okay, you can put it first and you can put it first in the means of no matter what profession that you're in um, no, and no matter who you're around. So um, I definitely appreciated that talking to um, this coach here. Yeah, Coach G showed me what it looked like, Ish. You know, he showed me that it's possible to, you know, to be a follower of Christ. You know, and then also try to be the best you possibly can be in this profession. But you can't get it, you know, you can't get it wrong. I've always, uh, I've always known what my priorities were for my life. You know, I've always placed God at the forefront. Um, but he really, you know, made sure he clarified that and let people know uh, what the priorities are at home and what the priorities are at work. And even at work, his wife still comes first. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. it's funny that he talked about it in there. Uh, you know, saying anytime he's in front of a mic, no matter where he's at, he shouts out God and he shouts out his wife. Um, because he wouldn't be he wouldn't be the man he is today and have the opportunity to have it, you know, that that he has without both of them too, man. And um I really, really, really enjoyed this conversation. I've had a really good opportunity to get to know Coach G. Uh, 
during the pandemic. Um, and so he's definitely been somebody that has really, you know, helped me in my growth over these short few months. Um, and I thought that, you know, the conversation was one that would be much needed, you know, for our audience. Yeah, Nick. Um, sometimes we get it wrong when we're chasing our dreams. We want to put work and then we want to put family and then we want to put God somewhere in there, you know, when we about to follow on our face. Um, sometimes you're at the back. Sometimes yeah. you got all the things before God too now. You know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> right. You know, he, he said, nah, what happens at home is going to show up at work. So we need to make sure oh, our God. problems are right. So I love the fact how... Um, how he talked about when he was a head coach, he made sure that that he knew that his staffs, you know, what was happening, you know, in it what was was it good at home, was it not good at home? Because they he knew that that was a priority and what, what they did at home impacted work. So um to me that's just really, you know, intentional leadership. Um and it's and it's very it's something that's very special. Nah, you're right. It's it's uh to go along with what you said, I remember doing a conversation where you said, I won't I need you guys to give me your kids schedule. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I want your kids schedule so I can basically tell you to get out the office and go, you better not be missing no games. You know what I mean? Like it's, uh, but it, but it goes back to what you said, just being intentional. Um, but then like, you, but, but knowing somebody for him, it comes easy because it goes back to, you know, him having his priorities in order and him knowing what's important. And those priorities aren't just for himself but they're for everyone else around him. Um, and I think that that's huge when you got somebody like that, that, you know, you can call your boss or somebody that's leading the program that you happen to be working for. Mm-hmm. And when your priorities are straight, decision-making is, is real easy. Um, so guys, get ready to enjoy this conversation. Get ready to get inspired, motivated. Get ready to get your priorities straight. Um, and enjoy this here. We are here with Jason G, assistant men's basketball coach at Cincinnati. Welcome to the show, Coach. We appreciate you being here with us. Uh, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. This is the Black Excellence in Sports podcast, where we highlight those who we believe have demonstrated Black excellence. We want to use their story, their voice, and their testimony to inspire others and unlock their greatness. Coach, how do you define Black excellence? What, what do you think about when that comes to mind? Well, I think uh, being proud of who you are uh, being grateful for, for the color of my skin. And, you know, this motto I've been carrying with me for quite some time, just a, just a strong black man doing his best and allowing God to do the rest. Uh, black excellence is serving others, uh, understanding the disparities in our community and being willing to stand in the gap for others, to lift others up, to using whatever uh, intelligence or platform or, or thing that you've, you've garnered uh, to share with others. That, that to me is the true definition of black excellence. Coach, is there anyone in your life that has demonstrated black excellence to you? Yeah, I'd have to start with my father. I, you know, I, I, he, was, he was an old timer. He was old school. You, he made you say yes, ma'am, yes, sir, to everybody. You had to take off your hat indoors. You had to open the door for ladies. Um, uh, he, was, uh, uh, he, he ministered to, to you so much without saying many words. Uh, one thing I remembered and how he helped make me into the man of I am is that I was a drug baby. I was drugged to church every Sunday. Wasn't an option. You were going to church. 
And I'll never forget, he used to comb my hair all the time, and I hated it because uh, I used to have that big, nappy afro back in the, back in the 70s, 80s. Uh, but I defined him as black excellences because he took care of his family. Uh, he was married before he met my mom, and uh, he had two kids that were two years apart. And when they lived with us, they were 11 and 9. And they used to always call him Daddy Mommy. And, and I was four years old. Now, one day, and I said, why do you call him Daddy Mommy? And they said, because our mom left and he was daddy and mommy to us. And it just really, really impacted me. And then, you know, I had three up, two older brothers. So five of us, counting the two of them and two older brothers with me. And he always worked two jobs. He worked from seven, six o'clock in the morning to noon at Sears. He was a janitor. Then he worked from, came home and took a nap, worked for three to, three to 11, Monday through Friday. And then Saturday mornings, he would work six to to, to 12. And I said to him one time, I said, dad, why do you work so much? He said, you boys got to eat, don't you? So he was just such a provider. He was such a provider. And in his, his providing for us, what enabled us to be able to do the things that we were able to do to be all that God has called us to be. And to me, taking care of your family, taking responsibility for your children, providing for your family, to me, that was black excellence. Coach, I want to ask you what separates you as a black man in this profession, but I want you to think back of when you first got started as an assistant when you were 23. Um, how was your mindset coming in as a, as a young black man coming into the profession? Well, back then I would have said I was the luckiest man in the world, only to find out I was blessed and highly favored. Um, I, I, I would have to say that I think the good Lord gave me certain gifts. I had a quiet, disciplined, faithful, hardworking father. And then I had an outspoken, outgoing, idealistic mother. And, and, and I really siphoned the best. I have a, my dad was the oldest of five children, was asked to leave during dinner time. And on those walks from 12 years old to 16 and he got a job, he would pray that God would send him a wife that could cook. Well, my mom was raised by a single mother who cleaned homes, cooked for a living, and sewed. And so me and my brothers, we had this huge weight problem because he was forcing us to eat. And my mom's love language was you ate her food. So as a 15 year old sophomore, I weighed 252 pounds. I weigh 230 today to tell you the difference of what, I, what the metamorphosis that God enabled me to do. Well, I met a high school coach who kept me my first year because I was a great kid. Dad had raised me right, I was mannerable. And then at the end of the year, he says to me, if you don't lose at least 15 pounds, don't even come out. I said, man, I'm not coming out anyway because you racist. And he said, wait a minute, I'm a white. All the coaches are white and all the players are black. That'd be impossible to be racist. We wouldn't be able to play anybody. Well, to make a long story short, this man began to work with me uh, every morning. Every morning he'd work, for me, work with me. And I went from 252 pounds to 230. I went from not getting to play on the JV team and my mom cheering for me while I was on the bench. And, you know, she didn't understand when I told her I was going to quit. She's like, well, what are you going to quit for? You're going to start on the varsity. I said, Mom, you don't sit on the bench all year and then on the JV team and then start for the varsity. But she prophesied that, spoke life into me, and inevitably it happened and went on to be a high school and a college Hall of Famer, and the rest is history. So I think you start with a certain gifts, and I look at that high school coach, and the first day he worked me out, he told me about Jesus. And I accepted him in my life, in my heart. I had been drugged to church every Sunday, but didn't know anything about a relationship. It's just what we did as black folk. And then when he told me about accepting it in my heart, 
and then began to work with me every day and help me lose the weight, that totally changed the trajectory of my life. And at the end of the day, I got, my brother was the biggest drug dealer in Dayton. He served from 14 to 47 in and out of group homes, penitentiaries. Nobody in my family had gone to college. So I realized that the gift that the Lord had given me with my parents and then this coach telling me about Jesus and then helping me lose weight, man, really opened things up. And, and being 23 and being one of the youngest Division I basketball coaches in the country, I remember sitting there with my queen. She was, 20, she was 21 when we got married, and I had an $81,000 house. I was raised in a $35,000 house with eight kids, and it was just me and her, double income, no kid. And I go, oh, I got to go back and thank that coach. She said, you've thanked him thousands of times. I said, no, you don't get it. So I go back, and I take him and his wife to dinner, and I'm crying. I got snot coming out my ears, my eyes. I'm just telling him how grateful I am because he had obviously changed my life. He had introduced me to Jesus. He had worked with me as a, as a coach, made me a better basketball player, made me a better person. And, and he said to me, you've thanked me enough. I, everywhere I go around town, people tell me, you thank me, you thank me. I was in your wedding. I was the only white guy in your wedding in Greensboro, North Carolina. What do you mean? I said, well, coach, I realized sitting in that home with a company car and my wife's got a company car and I'm making $19,000 and she's making $47,000 and we making more than anybody in my family ever thought about making. I realized I had thanked you for $100 only to know now sitting around in that $81,000 home that you gave me a million. So the thank you is different. He said, well, I'm, I'm not going to accept that expense paid vacation. His wife was like, oh, I really wanted to go to Italy, Jim. He said, if you really want to thank me, whatever you feel like I've done for you, you do for others. And so I'm still repaying him. So that was sort of my calling. So my gifts got me the opportunity, but my calling has kept me going. Coach, I want you to talk about honoring God's priorities throughout your life, and then you can touch on it throughout your profession. Okay. Well, you know, once I became a coach and realized that, man, how did, how did, how did, how did I get from inner city Springfield, Ohio, brother, the biggest drug dealer in Dayton, going through school with him being a year ahead of me and teachers treating me horribly because of the behavior he had to married to this engineer who's making all this money. And my dad comes to visit me in Youngstown and gets out the car and he goes, I never thought black folks would live like that. And then I got hooked up with a church to really sharpen me and grow. And the first thing that pastor talked about was, as long as you honor the priorities of God, he'll open up unbelievable doors. So just loving on my wife, uh, she was raised to be on the cover of Ebony and Jet magazine. So she wasn't into this submissive godly woman at the time. And just staying silent, loving her unconditionally, never complaining, just keeping her in, in prayer, uh, going to church with her, and after three years of marriage, her dad called me and, and told me I wasn't doing a good enough job leading her because he was disappointed in, in her behavior. And we went on a foreign tour when I, was, when I left and went to Ohio University, and she got these marriage tapes. And these marriage tapes, I had one earbud, she had one earbud, and I would stop him and say, now, honey, you hear what God is saying? And she was so blown away that I had sat on this for three years. Well, God had told me, if I'm going to honor my priorities, I had to, I, I couldn't, 
I couldn't push her to, through this. I had to love her through this. And I had to grow my relationship with him. So as I was growing my relationship with him, she became more submissive to me without me physically or even verbally doing anything. And then once we had kids, you know, just honoring her to be there, be her support emotionally and physically and letting her know she wasn't alone. And then once I was in a career, it, would, it was so funny because my kids were like seven and, and five and I would leave the office between five and six every day. And all the coaches would look at me like, why does he get to leave? And, and I never asked permission to do it, but because I knew I needed to honor God's priorities, I left. Now, there were days I stayed late, obviously, when I had things to do, but things I really didn't feel like I had to do. And then once I got home, my kids would just jump on me and I would literally sometimes drag them because I would never address them and speak to them before I addressed my queen. And so they got a chance to see the priorities that I was trying to instill in the home. But most importantly, the encouragement it gave my wife, who was home all day, wrestling with them, exhausted, cooking, preparing, all those things that, that, a, that a great woman of God does, uh, particularly when the husband's the breadwinner, she would do this. And you know, just honoring those priorities and seeing that how that benefited our kids and seeing how it brought unity in our marriage. And, and, then, and then it became, you know, when I, I'd have speaking engagements or the team and coach that introduced themselves, you know, all the men would be mad at me because I acknowledged her as my queen. So every time someone put a mic in my face, I honored God's priorities by saying, first of all, I want to thank God for this opportunity. Second of all, I want to honor my queen. And all the husbands would be like, the wives would be like, I love you, Jason. Get my husband to do that. Uh, but really and truly, it was really just to honor her. And, and, and I had to be honest with them and say, you know, I want you guys to understand, she makes, she's, I call her a queen, not, because, not just trying to honor her, but because she makes me feel like a king. So it's only appropriate that I call her my queen. And that type of priority has really blessed us and, and really bless the fruit of, of our marriage and our, all three of our kids are saved. All three of our kids are leaders. All three of our kids are leading others to Christ. I mean, it's just really been a blessing, just honoring God's priorities in my home and then obviously in my profession. What advice would you give a young coach who has to organize his priorities from going from being single in the profession to being married and then having children, but he's still trying to climb the ladder and be mm. the best coach he possibly can be. Mm. What That's advice awesome. would you give? That's awesome. Give I always speak in threes, Nick. Um, even when I was a head coach, I, I had 12 of my 31 years have been a head coach. I always speak in threes, consistent with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, or seven because that's a biblical time of comp completion. I believe there's power in those numbers. So let me give you three things. I think number one, I would tell a young coach to get right with God, to, to do what Jim Scobie, that high school coach, did for me. Because the competition in this business, you got to have a supernatural behind you to get an opportunity. I don't care how good you are. There's a lot of good people. So I would, I would tell them to, to grow their faith life. Because as you live in this life, you're going to face problems that may be a level seven. And if your face at a level three, it's going to overtake you. So I'm constantly encouraging young coaches, young brothers, grow your faith life. 
get closer to the Lord, learn how to understand that supernatural power there is in Jesus Christ. The second thing I would do is I would tell them to sharpen their gifts. So I have the gift of communication. I do tons of speaking engagements. I've written a book. I mean, it's just kind of my gift. Now, don't ask me to fix your car. I, I, I can go hours to tell you what I can't do. Take me five minutes to tell you the things I can do. Uh, but I would say sharpen your gifts because it's so competitive at this level. Whatever your gift is, make it better because that's the investment that you can make in yourself that has the biggest gain. You know, you take some players that work on their left hand, that's a weakness. You can spend 200 hours working on your left hand and may get 10% better. But you can spend 200 hours working on your gift. And because it's your gift, you can get it 40% better. So that, that would be the second thing. And then the third thing, and I say this in speaking engagement, choose a good team. Who's on your team? You know, I, I have been, my, I have the worst stats for a high school and a college Hall of Famer. But I was on the two best teams in my school's history. So you better be good at choosing a good team and, and, and leading that team and being the driver of that team. I think that's really, really important. Coach, you got me thinking about my, my priorities. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> let me get my priorities right. I'm like, is there anything else? Like, let me, let me get right. Um, Coach, I want to take you back to when you talked about your brother um, going on a different path as you. What, what kept you focused on your path to success or your path just growing up, knowing that you had a brother who was, you know, kind of going the opposite way right ahead of you? You know, to be honest, as you know, that easy money's tempting. Um, and, um, you know, before holes in jeans were popular, there were kids coming to the house, his friends that had holes in their jeans. And he just attracted a different clientele. So I think three things helped me. I think being involved in sports was a great, you know, was a great uh, distraction for me to not do what he was doing. And, and we didn't really get along well. So he wasn't, he was never attractive to me. Uh, being who he was. I think the second thing that helped was I, I learned, I tell this young people all the time and anybody, take advantage of your advantage. I had a well-respected father that was a hard worker. I had a well-respected mom. Uh, when she passed away, there were people coming to the home calling me and my dad outside. Uh, Jason, uh, your, your mom loaned me $300 or, you know, she cooked. I got pans and stuff at house I'll return or she co-signed for a loan I mean, there were thousands of dollars that, she, that we didn't even know that she was doing to try to help people in our community. And, and, and after three or four days, I, I, I pulled my dad aside. I said, Dad, I see you going outside sometimes. You know, do you know people are calling me out, telling me different things mom was doing for them? Did you know that? He went, Jason, son, that's the same thing they're doing to me. I said, well, what are you telling them? She said, he said, I ain't collecting nothing. I'm telling them just to keep that. So I had the benefit of two phenomenal parents, but one brother just decided to go the other way, okay? And then I think the third thing, I think, is the work ethic. You know, just, just, having, just having a great work ethic, I think th those would be the things I would say that, that really helped me, you know, stay on track, stay focused, and, 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 you know, the Lord just brought people in my life to kind of sharpen me and which is why I'm so determined to sharpen others. Coach, can you touch on how you've limited distractions um, within your life at an early age? Mm. You know, one of the things that one of my mentors told me, and I, and, I, and I hold true to this, 
you know, we all want to be great. Okay. So we're going back to our priorities, Nick. What do you want to be great at? I've decided as a, when I was a young kid, I wanted to be, I wanted to be a great Christian, even though I was young in the faith. My best friend's father was a pastor. So I went to church with him every Sunday, even when I was a kid, even though I was doing some crazy things Monday through Saturday. Okay. Um, I think I wanted to be a great athlete and, and, and I wanted to be a great student, although I wasn't very good at that, even though I got teachers to like me, which was really a ploy to be able to pass the class, to be honest with you. But as a grown up now, I don't golf, I don't tennis, I don't shop. I'm trying to be great at three things. One is my faith. So every morning, I'm going to spend 45 minutes to an hour in the word of God, my devotionals, my prayer. I want to be awesome at that. The second thing I want to be awesome at is, is being a father and a husband. I, I want to be awesome. And, and this marriage ministry thing that we do, you know, it holds me accountable. You know, if I'm going to be talking to couples, you know, then I better make sure my stuff's in order. So, so I'm constantly sewing into that, you know. And then the third thing is my craft and what I've chosen. You know, I, I tell people all the time, you know, my business card calls me a uh, college basketball coach. I'm not a college basketball coach. I'm a Christian college basketball coach. This is my calling. This is not my profession. The players are my sheep and I'm called to shepherd them. I'm trying to be great at those three things. When they say, hey, anybody want to go golfing? Nope. Anybody want to do this? Want to go, go hang out at the club? Nope. Anybody want to go to Cedar Point with the guys? Nope. If it's the church group and I, and I pass it with my wife, if the church, men of the church are going, yep, because that's church. So I really disciplined my life, and I've always had that gift of discipline that I didn't try to do a lot of things. I just tried to be really great at those three things. And I want people to say, I want, I just left my uh, evaluation with my boss and he said, man, you're exceptional at what you do. I mean, you heard him on the, on the, uh, on, on, on our zoom call, Nick, about how he was talking about me. You heard my wife talk about me. Uh, we're going to play the, 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 the thing my kids talk about. Me. I don't want to be known as a great golfer, great tennis. I, I, I don't, Great shopper. My wife does all my shop. I don't. I don't do the. I don't do the grass. I don't do stuff around the house. I pay somebody. I, I'm not going to be fixing something when when I'm already gone enough and my daughter's not talked to. So just being focused on those three things. And there's that number three again. Coach, I want you to unpack um, to all of our listeners how you say um, teaching the gospel so loud without saying a word. <laughs> you know. Um, this is the first setting I've been in in 30 years of coaching where I either I, I wasn't recruited to be the spiritual leader of the staff or obviously the head coach that I, I'm, I'm transitioning into an environment where 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 it's not predominantly Christian. And so um, I had to figure out a new way to share the gospel without talking. And, uh, you know, it's funny because a month or two on the job, I, I got called from former coworkers and they're like, man, I bet you sharing the word with them all the time. I said, no, I haven't done it one time. What? Uh, no, I, I have not done it one time. I have not mentioned God's name one time. And so I began, I found out who were, who, who enjoyed coffee. So we got three coaches, four coaches that enjoyed coffee. So every Monday I brought them coffee. Uh, then I would steal their car keys and fill their gas tank up. And I would keep the concept, whatever I'm pouring out, God's going to replenish. And, and, and 
you would be shocked at how he kept replenishing. And then with my head coach, I found out what time he came in. I made sure his door was always open and music was always being played. Um, one time, one of the coaches called upstairs right for practice, left their lunch upstairs. I grabbed it, put it in the microwave. Now, again, I'm the top assistant. Um, I'm making more money than everybody in the building except the football coach and the offensive coordinator and defense coordinator and the head basketball coach. But yet my goal was that if you watched our staff and the way we moved, you'd think I was the GA. So, so serving um, and, and being there for people, like, you know, if they drop something, like if one of the assistants dropped something, I'd run and hurry up and try to hurry up, pick it up and give it to them. Uh, if, if one of them was, was not feeling well, I made sure I called them every day. Do you need anything? I would bring them things beside the coffee. And, and, you know, as months went by, they were like, wow, you know, and then they started asking me questions like, and then they asked me to do the prayer for the, before the games. And one time, one of the assistants who, who, who doesn't know the Lord says, now, now make sure it's quick. We don't need one of them long players, you know? And, and, and if you can't tell, I'm pretty confrontational. So I, I just quieted my spirit and I began praying and we were walking out. We were playing Connecticut on national TV. And so the clock was at a minute 28. We usually get out there about 350. And, and I said to him, oh, you wanted me to do one of those quick prayers. God is great. God is good. Lord, we thank you for food. And he's like, oh, coach, is that really one of y'all's Christians prayer? And I went, no, no, no. That's it. That was a joke. But what we do have is we, we believe in a relationship. And I was able to minister to him. They were literally calling out the starting lineups. I had captivated his, his attention. Now, that was in January. I started the serving when I got here last May. So, so from May to January, it took me to get him to really open up and confide in me. And then I had another one of the assistants I was doing this to that came to me and says, hey, I think what you do for Coach Brandon is awesome. He says, I don't know how you do it. It must be, your, it must be the faith in you. I was like, what are you talking about? He goes, oh, man, it's, it's obvious you love the Lord. I was like, oh, well, man, thank you. I, you know what I do? He goes, man, you, you need to give more of that to us. So, you know, that, that's kind of like examples of sharing the gospel without saying his name. Whereas you heard Pat Kelsey said, when I was there, because I was sent for that, we started every meeting with prayer. We, we, everything we did was centered around Christ. And, you know, that, that's just the platform he gave me. Now, we're not at that point yet, but in a year's time, the growth that's happening without me ever saying his name, unless obviously they initiated in those situations, was the same growth it was in the other situations I've been in, which lets us know that it ain't, it ain't God. It's, it's just us being faithful and obedient to what he's called us to do. Coach, before we transition, talk to me about when you were a head coach, how you serve your staff. Mm, mm. Well, um, I, I, I asked my queen, I said, we got to, it was the start of my second year there, I think, maybe third, I'm not sure. I said, God has led me to, to really serve them in a supernatural way and I need your help. And uh, so we, 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 we invited the staff over for a breakfast. We cooked them breakfast. And then after breakfast, they were all set in the living room and she, and she carried the tray and I washed every one of their feet just to show them how much I loved them 
and how much I wanted to show, serve them. And then I read the scripture of how, you know, the way Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. And, and so uh, I would always uh, be encouraging them professionally. So you, you had to come to me and say, um, hey, there's a speaking symposium in Denver, Colorado that, that'll help me be a better speaker. They, boom, it was done. GA, video guy, everybody, student assistant, anybody under my umbrella, I always provided for them expense paid to go to the Final Four and be a part of all the professional development that goes on. Um, I was obviously the mentor of all my assistant coaches. Uh, for Christmas, we had a marriage retreat session. So we had all the coaches and their wives. And we, did a, we, had, we fed them dinner and we did a marriage session with them. Um, I would always ask the ones with kids, hey, what, do you, what time's JJ's game on Saturday? Coach, what are you talking about? I was like, tell me what time your sons play. He goes, why? We're going to practice Saturday, right? I go, yeah. He goes, well, I'm going to be there whatever time. I said, no, nah, I didn't ask you that. So, so I had my assistants had to give me their kids' schedule. One, because I wanted to come to the games to support them. But two, so I could adjust practice times so that they never missed a game. So that was really important. You know, John Brandon told the story when he worked for me. Uh, he came in. Now, I was a top 10 team in the country, and he said, I wanted to, I wanted to go to Eastern Kentucky. Now, we were Division Two, That was Division One, And I called Travis Ford, the head coach of Eastern Kentucky, every hour on the hour for seven straight hours. And that really – that came back up in a Zoom call with a recruit. He had never said anything about it, you know. So just always trying to find out what their needs are, you know. Um, if they had any marital issues, we might have to cancel practice. We're going to get that marital issue straight. If I needed to send them someplace for marital counseling, um, you know, constantly pouring into them profession-wise, uh, hooking up times where they can go sit down with Gary Waters, who is my mentor, go see a Cleveland State practice, calling Ohio State, hey, I got a guy I'm sending up there. I want, him to, want you to talk to him about defense. Sending him to Xavier or Wake Forest where Pat Kelsey was at. You know, constantly trying to do the things that help them grow. Uh, and then at the same time, giving them solid, constructive criticism uh, on a consistent basis. I mean, I didn't hold back. I mean, we got to get it done. This is what you got to do if you say this is what you want. So uh, that, was a, that was a few things that we did for our assistant coaches that, that really made them in turn take a bullet for me. You know, you, you wash your brother's feet, coach. I mean, he, he'll do some bangs for you now. There's bunions and corns and everything I fought through, you know. That's funny. Coach, I love that you said, you know, not only did you, you know, adjust around kid, their kids schedule, but you also adjust around, you know, they were having marital issues. Like we, we got to stop this practice to, to deal with that. You mentioned it earlier, but can you, can you touch more on that about how if everything's not right at home, then it's important that you address it, you know, so it could be right at work. Can you talk about your, your mentality with that, making right. sure that's good before, um, before work? Cause a lot of people struggle with that as well. Yeah, um, I, I, it hurts me. I, I see it a lot. But here, here's my philosophy. When, when I hire a coach, I, he has certain prerequisites. One, he's got to be ready and willing to give me his kid's schedule. Two, 
he's got to have a mandatory date night with his wife, even if that means that me and Lynette, my queen, are watching his kids, or I got to pay for it, okay? And three, they've got to travel on at least two road trips. So, and I say two because one of them should be just him and his wife, and the other should be either him and his wife and his kids or just him and his kids. So I didn't really believe in you coach a whole year and you don't put a, a coach's family on the bus. That, 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 that just didn't make sense to me. So, so I would, I, you know, if, if, if I knew my assistant coach's date night was Thursday night and I was working late, I'd have to kick him out of there. Every wife had my number, okay? If they were having marital issues or, or the husband was losing sight of his priorities, all they had to do was call me. They knew that, okay? I was the accountability wing. Um, I think those things are important. So again, you know, I didn't have, I didn't have issues with coaches leaving. Wives didn't want them going nowhere. Uh, but, but I do think it's important. And one thing I would say to young coaches is that they get so focused on chasing this profession that they, they lose sight of the priorities that God gave them. And, and, and I, as I share with countless others, my family will never compete with the amount of hours that I work. I mean, I, I sleep at home. If I take those eight hours away, I, there's no way the hours I work are going to be anywhere near the hours I spend with my family. My goal wasn't to win the hour battle. My goal was to win the priority battle. And so if I put a microphone in all my kids' face to this day and say to you, is my priorities greater for you or for his job? They would all say greater for me. And that's something you got to work for as a husband, as a father. But as a young coach, you think I got to chase this dream. I got to be in the office all the time. I got to impress man. I got to impress my head coach. No, you got to impress. And that's why I say the priorities are so key. And that's why I say your faith is so key. Because if my faith had a level three, chasing the professions at level seven, it's going to win out. But if my faith had a level seven, I can walk out of the office at five o'clock. And, and the things I didn't think I, I, I wasn't getting done, God just makes a way for it because I'm honoring his priorities. Coach G, there are some people that are listening to this podcast right now that share the same values and the same priorities as you do when it comes to their family obviously their kids and their wife, but they don't have the open line of communication or the environment is not in place for them to do the things that you are willing to allow your assistants to do. What advice would you give them to help that individual so they can really kind of speak to their boss so they can do the things that you allow your assistants to be able to do? That's a great question. I mean, you guys are really serving people here. Um, I think it starts on the front end. You know, I interviewed for seven head coaching jobs and multitude of assistant jobs. And every time that I got called for an interview, I would tell the coach that was recruiting me or that I was trying to recruit to get the job, can my wife come? She's my queen. I don't like making decisions without her. So from Jump Street, Nick, I'm sending that coach a message that my family's a priority and I don't care how long he's coaching, I'm one of maybe one, two, or three dudes that's ever done that to him. So making that initial impression from the jump that, hey, I'm going to work for you, but, but this is a priority to me. 
okay? So, so and then I think during the actual negotiations, you talk about, you know, coach, how do you feel about having kids at the office? Because I, I may just show up if, if I miss my daughter, I might tell her to stay home for half a day. She's a 4.0 student. She took after her mama, not me. Uh, so she might be at the office with me on, during the day. How do you feel about that? Okay. Now, what I would say to you is if that person was turned off on that, then I need to really evaluate whether I'm working for him or not. Okay. Now, let me, let me, that, that's an ideal situation. I know that's not for everybody, and that probably helped the lowest percentage of the coaches. But we also got to shake off this invisible oppression that the systemic racism in our profession has given us, that we just got to serve the master. We just got to serve the master. I can't ask him for anything. I can't ask to go to my son's game. I can't ask to get on a, on a, on a training session. I, I got to work for him. There's, there's an oppression that, that, as we found out, Nick, in our group, it's not real. It, 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 and unless you are willing to stand up for that, um, then no one is going to really respect you anyway. But if you're in a job that has those types of demands on you, I would say to you, I'm not telling anybody to quit. I would say there's going to be victory in submission. And so set your family down. Let them know the kind of job you have. And God has called you to honor the authority of that job. And I need their help and their prayers. And we need to establish some quality time so, because this job is really, you know, I, I interviewed for a job. One of my mentees was there. And, and I, me and Lynette were about to go down one day. And that night at 11 o'clock, he calls me like, man, I can't do this. Don't come, man. He'll call you at 1 o'clock in the morning and tell you you got to be in the office. He goes, and I know you ain't coming, so it ain't going to be right for you. Well, I ended up calling the guy the next morning. I never went there. And it was a $50,000 increase, okay? So, so I do think that I'm not going to take the responsibility off the individual or the oppressed to not try to navigate or at least advocate. And the way I looked at it was for my family. It wasn't for me. So it was easy for me to fight for my family. But when you're in a situation where you don't have those rights, I would say serve be as obedient as you possibly can. Make sure your family's in on it, that they understand that you, you, you're working at a place where this guy's a good guy, but right now I'm required to do this, this, and this, and, and make sure the time I'm spending with them as well. But I would also press the envelope every now and then. You know, I think that's important. And when people see that your family's a poorty, most people will begin to loosen up. And I would say that if you're in that situation and it's tough, then do a great job so you can move on to a place where you would, you would be a little bit more comfortable or learn how to navigate, negotiate on the front end. Most people negotiate money. How much camp they get? I never did. I negotiated my family. So I said, that, said hey, hey, Stan Van Gundy, if I come to Wisconsin, are you gonna be okay with my son coming up here? Uh, can my son travel to games? I'm just saying. That, that's what, what I would advise once I got out. But once I'm in, I'm going to do a phenomenal job there and, and, and be an extension of that head coach and what he demands and expects. But I'm also going to push the envelope every now and then for my family. Coach, um, earlier you talked about giving solid constructive criticism. And then you talked extensively about how you serve your assistants and things of that nature. How do you 
um, you know, maybe for somebody listening, even within my, myself who maybe want to be a head coach one day or is a head coach and they feel like they got to be like, since they are the person that got to give the criticism, they can't serve or they can't like, you know, come on their level. So how do you kind of balance the constructive criticism? And also I'm here for you no matter what you, if you, if you got something with your family, go ahead. You got something with your wife or your husband, go ahead. But this still got to get done. How do you balance that type of, that type of mindset? Well, I think, I think number one, I think the relationships that you set up as a head coach, you know, with your assistants is going to be key. And, 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 and what they therefore see you modeling. So, so there'll be some days like, I'm out, guys. Hey, it's date night. <laughs> Mama G want me home. Forget you guys. Trust me, y'all don't make me feel like she do. I'm out, you know. Amplifying that situation and modeling what you're expecting from them. I, I think that's a major, major point. But the relationship you have with them and they know you're invested in their career. And so they don't take your constructive criticism as personal. So, so you know, my, my son is, is um, he's going through the process. He's gotten a few promotions already on this ownership management program for Chick-fil-A. And the boss was trying to get another store and he wanted my son to speak. And this corporate was coming down to this store in Knoxville, Tennessee, to, to see how he ran this store to see if they were going to reward him with another. And he went to my son and he said, uh, I, I, need you to, I need you to be clean shaven. Well, who said clean shaven was right? The power structure. White people. So our culture says we got a little goatee. You know, our hair is what it is. And so I said to him, well, how did you feel about that? Uh, and he said, well, dad, he said, um, you know, this guy's been really good to me. We got a great relationship. I know he's got my best interest. So there's that relationship piece, okay? And he could understand that in the world he was trying to impress, having employees that were cleanly shaven was important. And he understood that's just part of the uniform that Chick-fil-A is demanding. But where I challenged him at was, hey, man, this guy came to you and is wondering about how you're doing now that this Black Lives Matter thing's going, won't you, won't you educate him on that? That you were willing to shave because of your relationship and because you feel a part of the company, uh, not because you were pressured or you felt like he was taking something away from you, but utilize that relationship now to help him become a better leader. Because maybe next time he won't ask you to shave. You know, I think that's what's going on in America right now. It's, it's they have been such a dominant system talking about white people that they have disregarded who we are in our culture and we've got to do a good job of helping them by expressing ourselves in opportune times uh, and if that means expressing yourself by how important your family is because there are some white coaches that don't believe our families are important and and we it's our job to educate them so the relationship the modeling uh is and then just the just the honest communication they really appreciate it. And I'm also free with praise. Uh, it's not hard for me to praise my staff. It's not hard for me to praise my boss. I, I'm the, I'm, they call me Mr. Encourager. I'm telling everybody they're doing a good job. I, I think people love that. I think that draws people close to you when you're encouraging people. And so they, they got a lot of that from me, uh, but they also got constructive criticism. And it, and it was valuable because of the relationship, because they had gotten encouragement, and they see me model what I was asking them for. Coach, kind of stand on the topic of constructive criticism. 
because you've done this for a very long time, so you've seen a lot. Um, what advice would you give young black coaches? Or let me say this. Let me rephrase it. What stumbling blocks mm. do you see young black coaches have in this profession? And then what advice would you give them to overcome those stumbling blocks? Well, you know, I, 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 let me just talk about myself. I, I, I was hard-headed. Uh, when I was an assistant coach at Ohio University, I was 27 years old, and the head coach came to me and says, you're, you're a phenomenal recruiter. Players love you. You do a great job, but you're a head coach. He's like, I want you to go back and get your master's degree. And uh, because back then, to be a head coach, you needed to have your master's. And I was like, coach, I can't do that. I got to recruit. He's like, no, no, I'm going to give you the time. Don't worry about that. And I went around telling all my friends, man, this white man trying to screw me, trying to take me off the road. That's what I do. Ignorance, just ignorance. Thank the Lord he loved me through my ignorance and made it, he, he, he pulled rank. Yeah, this is what you're going to do. He made me do that. Like my dad made me go to church. All right, I'm thankful for that now. I'm thankful for, the, for Larry Hunter doing that to me. So I think, I think just speaking about me is how do you grow out of that being hardhead? Well, that's why I think it's important for you to recruit and find a mentor. You know, my father-in-law was an educated man. My dad wasn't. He became my mentor. When I'm at Ohio University, I'm 23, 22 years old, and I'm a GA, and he, coach, the head coach tells everybody all these responsibilities, recruit, summer school, camp. When he gets to me, he said, hey, Jason, go find a janitor and clean these boards in here. I walked out of there pouting, salting, mad. I called my father-in-law because he was part of the black movement from Greensboro, North Carolina. I thought he was going to side with me. I said, can you believe what this white man did? He said, shut up. He said, you learn the business from the ground up. Whatever, whatever he tells you to do, you do. So having mentors that when you're ignorant in 23 and think you know it all or 25 or 26 or 30, that you got an older guy that you can lean on, that you can run stuff by, and understand. I mean, I almost blew my own career, Nick, just from being ignorant. So I think that's a big deal. I think having someone in the profession that you work with um, is really important. Uh, relationship izing other coaches, you know, on the staff. I think what kind of relationship do you have with the coaches on your staff? I think that's big. I would, I would give a young assistant that to, to kind of, and then I think thirdly, just, just staying humble. Understand your name don't have to be in lights. You don't have to be the guy getting this opportunity. I think humility is something that the world looks at as being soft. But, you know, I'll never forget when I was at St. Bonaventure, we, we, we go to eat. I'd always be last, you know. And, and through the years, the reputation that, that being the least among those and the grace that it provided me and the credibility it provided me, uh, I can't put a price tag on. Answer me this, Coach. What does it look like? Um, or what does recruiting a mentor look like? Like, how does a young man go about establishing that connection? Hmm. And, then, and then along with that, I want to know your thoughts on, does it matter if your mentor look like you? Hmm. That's awesome. Well, how do you, let me get the first part. I may need you to remind me in a second, but the first part is, is how do you identify 
a, a mentor? How do you get one? How do you recruit one? Um, well, since it was advised to me by my father-in-law, who was a mentor to me, but he wasn't in the profession, he told me to be observant. You know, when you go out on the road, you see the guys that are showing up on time. You know, you sit beside certain guys um, and, and you start following them. You know, maybe you coach against them. You know, um, you, you, you start when you talk to high school coaches, they're talking about them. Or, and then you just do your own investigation. You know, what do you think about that Gary Waters guy? And, and I'll never forget after about, you know, a year or so of me doing this, I went to him and said, my name is Jason G. How you doing? He says, I'm Gary Waters. I go, no, no, no. I know your name. He's like, oh. And, and, and I said, look, coach, I've, I've kind of observed you. I, I'm a young guy in this profession, and I really admire the way you move and the way you conduct yourself. And, man, I need a mentor. And he goes, oh, man, that's awesome. And then I began to put myself in front of him. You know, I called him up Final Four that same year. I said, hey, look, do you mind if I take you to breakfast? He goes, no, I, you know, I'm, I'm ready to go down now at the hotel, host hotel. And, and that just kept building that relationship, you know, and then it got to the point where my wife and his wife were getting together for dinner. Uh, during breaks, I would go see his team, you know, spend my Christmas break with him a couple of days, you know, and just continue to cultivate, which then allowed me to confide in him. So I think young coaches, you, you, you know who you are, you know what success looks like, you know what attracts you, you know what you want to be like. You know the reputation you want to have. There's enough diversity out here. Hey, you want to move a shake and have three phones? And those kind of people are out there too, okay? You can find them. But that person who you want to be, um, you can certainly find them. And I think you got to be just like you're looking for players to, to come on your team, and you better be good at that. You better be good at recruiting a mentor or mentors to help you do that. Um, I had some mentors that did not look like me. Um, I think the reality of it is uh, it's who can help you, who, who is truly committed to investing in you. The man that told me I needed to get my master's degree, the man, the first man to tell me I was a head coach was not a black man. It was a white man. And, and I would hear him talk to boosters at Ohio U and say, what do you think of Coach G? Oh, man, yeah, gee, he's doing a great job recruiting for you. And he, and he would interrupt me like, whoa, 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 he's more than a recruiter. And, and hearing those, in my ignorant self, I'd be mad, like, like he was taking some of my shine away from me. You know, that's how ignorant I was, okay? And then eventually I realized that he was really trying to help me, and I began to confide in him. And when I got my first head coaching job, I left Ohio U, and he came to my first game. And 80% of everything I did on the court was what he did. And he was so honored by that. So I do think it's important to have mentors and it doesn't matter what color they are. And as a matter of fact, I would have a diversified group because there's just doors that white folk can open that black folk can't. Coach, um, I, I want to go back to when you said that you, you were hard-headed at first. Um, the second person that said <laughs> you it. You had to bring that out, huh? Yeah, because I mean, that's kind of what I get for myself a little bit. And then, you know, clearly hearing you speaking now, you got your priorities in order. Can you talk about how, um, you know, just, just briefly about that, how you technically went from being hard-headed, you know, maybe doing kind of your own thing to having this is my priorities, I'm going to do this, this, this kind of, can you talk about how that, um, that process went? 
I'm trying not to use this as an answer for everything because I know you guys are really looking for content, but it's, it's Christ. Okay. Um, you know, my relationship with Christ. Now I, I know everyone doesn't have a relationship with Christ. And I know everyone's relationship with Christ is not as strong. So, so I would say the, 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 the having people that love me through that, um, Larry Hunter loved me through that. I can't give myself credit that I graduated on my own. Uh, he just kept loving me until my eyes were open because two years later I became a head coach and he would tell me about his meetings with the AD and, you know, he just kept loving on me to the where it just changed my mindset. So I, I wish I can say it was something I did. I think if I deserve credit, it was surrounding myself with the right people that were willing to pour into me. Um, and, and again, having a father-in-law that said, that's not a bad guy by telling you to clean the boards is a good guy. You know, nowadays we want instant gratification. My father-in-law was so excited about me starting from the ground floor because he knew that, that you had to fill in all the squares. And once all the squares were filled up, they were like boxes. And then you, when you got to that top box, you were ready to be a head coach. But you, you had all that experience in those boxes that you just carried with you. I didn't see it that way. He helped me see that. So there was no to die movement in me. I, I surrounded myself with the right people. And I did listen. And my dad taught me about submission. So even when he said things that I didn't inwardly agree with, I still submitted. So the submission and my upbringing that my dad gave me, because, you know, you didn't sass grown folks. If you were a kid and you were in the room and, and he'd say, hey, boy, get out of here, grown folks in here. If you didn't move fast enough, he took off his 13 and he threw it at you. You, you better start moving. So that, that's what I mean when you, when you ask the original question about having a, who, who, is, who is the black essence to me was my father. And those things he taught me, albeit he didn't have a college education, albeit he was never a professional, never wore a white collar to work, but those intangible qualities of integrity, character, man of your word, discipline, submission, uh, they, they served me well. And I took those qualities. And even when I was blind, I was still able to be submissive until I could see. Coach G, don't take the shine from God now. If all your answers <laughs> got to say Christ, hey, it's Christ. You know, because again, this, you know, we both know, and you're obviously allowing our listeners to know that you wouldn't be in this place without him. So Amen. Don't, don't take that shine away from him. But something I know our listeners probably would want to know, um, because again, a lot of people, they talk about how they're followers of Christ. But when it comes in this profession, Christ seems to be put on the back burner. Obviously, you're showing that he is number one in your life. So can you speak to them about how you're intentional about your daily growth mm. with him? What, what, what does that look like? When does it come? You mm. know, where do you do it? How do you do it? Just to kind of give them some understanding so maybe they can incorporate it in their life. Mm. So hopefully they can continue to grow, you know, closer. Yeah, great question. Well, I think just, just taking you through a typical day or work week, uh, number one, my own personal quiet time. And at the conclusion of that uh, time with my queen, so whether we go on a walk or we do a devotional together or pray together, and then when I get to the office, I still like being the first one. 
and and then just being on i call it, i call it service alert so so my office is here and coach brandon's office is behind me and we got a refrigerator at the end of the hallway when i hear him say um anybody want uh, uh is anybody going to lunch i'm going coach uh can i bring you a drink you know just being on service alert you know obviously doing my job but being on service alert, obviously I can't respond to everything because I got to do my job or, you know, Hey, could somebody get one of the players? I got it. You know, I love taking roles that were quote unquote for the lower assistants or the GAs. I love taking those job assignments when I can. So, so that, that's the way that looks. I asked coach Brandon if I could start a Monday morning Bible study in our office complex. And he allowed me to do that. And every Sunday night, regardless if nobody ever shows up, I send an invite saying we're meeting Monday morning for Bible study. And it concludes at 8.30, which is the time he wants us to start. So ironically, when all those Christian folk are leaving my office, all of my work folks are walking in. So the Lord has been able to lasso a few of those guys into that meeting, 7.45 to 8.30. Um, so so I, think, I think, and then, you know, once we start, you know, once we get into practice, you know, making sure that if coach is on one of the court and he says, everybody in, I'm, I'm the first one in. I'm, if he calls me, Coach G, I'm running to him. If one of the other assistants or the quote unquote third assistant or the second assistant calls me, I'm running to me. Hey, coach, what do you need? Or whatever I can relieve off their plate, I'm constantly doing that. And, and then, you know, I try to be the last one to leave. Like if a kid wants to talk or if he wants to shoot, I want to be seen as that servant. So I'm always the last one in the gym with a kid or, or with the kids, you know. Um, and, and, and in that modeling now, the other coaches stick around. Again, this is what I mean by sharing the gospel so loud. So now the other coaches stick around because they saw this quality time that I was having with the players, you know. So they, they start, our head coach now, when he's done, he just goes sits at the side. He just sits and watches everybody. And then, you know, if he's got something going, he'll leave. But if not, he'll just stay there. So I, I think just being, being on service alert all day. And, and then here I am before the first game, they go, hey, coach, you mind lead us in prayer every game? I'm like, oh, wow, okay. You know, um, just, just being that gospel. And, and I think the biggest thing is, just how you live your life. You know, I've been doing this 30 years. I've never used a cuss word. Now, again, I always say that don't make me better than nobody, but I never got the technical at 12 years head coach because I didn't believe Jesus Christ would have got a technical. He'd have been intense. He'd have been competitive, but he wouldn't have crossed that line. So again, what you're modeling, you know, so we got players that, you know, say to me in February and March, coach, man, you've been coaching all year. I ain't never heard you cuss. I was like, why I got to cuss? That don't make me no coach, but it makes me a Christian. You know, any time of opportunities that you can serve people that'll get them to say, coach, man, how you, why you love your wife so much? That's my opening. You serve so loud, you don't have to say anything about God. So just that whole maneuver is how I institute my faith. If we're talking about Sunday practice, I'll say, hey, coach, you mind we do it after two? Why, coach? Because I don't get out of church till 1.30. You know, now he might practice at 11. That's not the point. He has to know that, that 
church is my priority. When they see me on the bus, I'm not watching a rated R movie. I'm, I'm reading. I'm reading Tattoos on the Heart. <laughs> I'm reading Tony Dungy, Quiet Strength. I'm, I'm reading, you know, my, my content is the gospel. I'm aware of that because of the way I live my life, everybody's looking at me, you know. And so that, that's kind of how I sort of move and shake uh, for Christ's sake. Love it, Coach. It's so many... So many opportunities to do that in in our profession, and, and people think it take it's time, it's this, you know, it's just you know walking it, walking it, modeling it, you know. But I have a question about something that you brought up earlier. You talked about the the power structure, and you you mentioned that white folks can open doors that black folks can't sometimes. Um, can you can you help the young or even older person? Um, or can you can you explain a little bit about honoring the power structure, you know, and, and kind of using it to your advantage, but at the same time, um, not, you know, that invisible oppression that you talked about, you know, so not That's feeling real. like you're oppressed, but still honoring the power structure, whatever that power structure may be. Yeah, yeah, good question. Um, you know, first of all, I, I, I would say to people is that um, God says to honor your authority figures. Uh, and so to be Christ-like, you do that, you know, they were trying to bamboozle Jesus and he, and they said, well, what are you going to do about those taxes? And he knew that they were corrupt. He said, I'm going to render Caesar what Caesar. So even though he knew it was a corrupt system, he still was going to be obedient to the laws of the land. So I think your obedience is, is extremely valuable to your testimony. Okay. Now I think this, once you have that obedience down that you are being submissive to whatever that authority is, I do think you got to learn to leverage. I really do. And, 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 you know, Nick, I don't know if you were a part of this particular call or you were on at the time, but I had a young man that was saying he couldn't be a part of our group because they had a, they had a staff Zoom call. And I just challenged him. I was like, well, why don't you, you're more valuable than you think. Why don't you tell your coach that, um, you know, hey, I got this opportunity for some professional development. It's during our Zoom call. Are you okay if I, if I go on? And, and make a long story short, he, his boss not only let him do it, but they've got an African-American director of basketball operations. He said, put him on as well. And, and this coach said, I, feel, I felt liberated. So we're so used to being oppressed that we weren't even going to challenge the infrastructure or the authority, okay? Now, submission doesn't mean you never challenge. Submission means that whatever's decided by the authority, you submit to. So I think... Honoring your authority, I think learning to leverage, I think that's really important. And I think when you learn to leverage, you get a chance to assess your value, okay? Um, and, it's, and I think it's important to do that. Um, if, 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 if I'm trying to gain information and knowledge and, and, and break out of these chains of oppression, then I've got to sometimes challenge that head coach on developing me. And, and I would start by saying, coach, you know, I, I'm sure every head coach says I want to hire everybody that wants to be assistant. I would, I would challenge that head coach to give me some time and say, coach, can, can I take you to breakfast Saturday or, or off, the, off the record or Monday morning? Maybe we'll go at 730. I, I need about an hour of your time. And I, wanna, I, want, I want you to be thinking about how you're going to help me or how, what advice would you give to me to be in your seat? Now, I would, I would recommend that during the off season. Um, 
But, but so, so on an authority, leveraging your position by advocating for yourself and your family, and then challenging that head coach. Because when you do that and you have that dialogue, it gives you a comfortability to walk in and say, you know, coach, I want to be a part of this group. I want to be a part of this, this select assistant coaching group. And I know you had said that I needed to do this and this. Now it becomes his idea. And you're not, you're not nervous about asking because you're worried about what's he going to think and, 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 and am I being selfish. But you're just using his words. But if you never address him, you can't do that. And then you leave him with, after that breakfast with Coach, from time to time, I just want to be able to run these things by you about things maybe I should do or shouldn't do. Make it his idea. But if you walk in, I want to go to the BCA. I want to do this. I want to do that. I, no. Coach, this is based off your trajectory. Do you think this would be good? That, that kind of helps you open the door to have that kind of communication. Well, thank you for that great insight, Coach. Um, simply because I was on that call, and I remember when you expressed that to him, and I, it, you know, quickly I was very convicted because obviously that's something that I dealt with in my young you know, professional career. Um, and, and to be honest, I was working with, you know, a black boss. Um, and my thought process always, always was, if my goals aren't aligned with his, then I'm not, I got to put myself in the back seat. So it doesn't matter what I'm trying to do because obviously it may not work out for him. But, mm-hmm. but coach, as we wrap up, um, obviously this is the Black Excellence Podcast. And, you know, we think you're someone not only that has demonstrated that within our career, but, but of course, just, just listening to you now and myself, obviously getting to know you, you know, you demonstrate that through all walks of life. Um, and so with that being said, we have placed you atop, you know, of the throne and we placed the crown on top of your head um, yeah. to be someone that, you know, that we look up to um, because, again, you're here to inspire and empower the next generation. Um, but, Coach, when that time comes and you do step off that throne and you have to take that crown off and pass it to the next individual the next young man um or woman uh what's the last message you would like to put in there to help them as they start and continue their journey well i think um you know sort of my my mission and that is you know be committed to equip and inspire others uh take that torch that um my gratitude from the man who led me to Jesus and helped me turn my life around, said to me, I'm not taking an expense paid trip, but if you really want to thank me, you do whatever you thought I did for you, for others. Well, he changed my life. He changed the trajectory of my life. I would not be on this call right now had he not entered in. So I would tell that person, and I think it is important, even in your position, in your position as well, Isha, um, who are you readying, readying for the person when you leave, for your boss? Who are you cultivating to take your throne? And as black folk, we don't, we don't reduplicate ourselves enough. We leave and it's over. Our counterparts are constantly talking to their mentees, constantly navigating for them, constantly keeping a seat warm for them so that they can remain in those seats. So I would say to you that I'm constantly looking for young brothers to impact them enough and inspire them enough that when I do retire, 
that they will take up that same cross to bear, that they would do it from a faith perspective, that they would be led to inspire and encourage others for the gospel so that they can reach heights that they would have never reached had it not been for their influence. I want to thank you so, so much for taking the time to listen to this podcast episode. Um, I want to give a huge shout out to Rising Coaches for partnering with us and giving us this platform um, to share these amazing stories. Real quick, guys, if you are not a member of Rising Coaches and you are in the basketball profession, you want to coach, you're a seasoned coach, you're a beginner coach, it does not matter. I want to encourage you to check out Rising Coaches. Um, Join Rising Coaches and become a member of the largest coaching tree in basketball. Over 1,300 members from all levels, high school to NBA, gain access to over 1,000 hours of coaching clinics um, and build genuine relationships with other coaches. Rising Coaches provides the community and the resources that will help you have long-term success in the coaching industry. Please visit Rising Coaches to join or if you got any questions, hit me up.